Welcome back to MERS Monday. For more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's edition of MERS Monday, CEO Adrian Hemond of Grassroots Midwest and Chief Strategist John Selleck of Harbor Strategic share what surprised them most this year in the state legislature and what kind of chaos bomb could still occur after they adjourn for 2023. Hillary Doe, the first state chief growth officer in the country, doesn't see a significant correlation between low taxes and population growth when she looks at data. She and work group member Fatima Salman give updates on the governor's Growing Michigan Together Council. State Representative Jamie Green of Richmond says she's learned that anytime a bunch of amendments are slapped onto a bill on the House floor, it was a piece of garbage to begin with. Now here's MERS reporter Samantha Schreiber and House reporter Danielle James. Thank you so much, Mark Bayshore, for kicking off today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. We are warming things up today with our roundtable conversation where guests can share their personal hot takes and can take their individual deep dives into what's going on with Michigan politics. This week is a special one, with last week marking the final days of regular session in the state legislature here in Michigan, where Democrats saw, Democrats saw things like the passage of their clean energy by 2040 package in state-run commercial wind and solar project siting legislation, as well as the passage of the Proposal 1 financial disclosure legislation dealing with the filing of assets and non-state income streams for legislators, top statewide executives, and candidates. With Democratic leadership closing up shop in Lansing this week, we are joined by Chief Executive Officer Adrian Hemond of Grassroots Midwest and CEO and Chief Strategist John Selleck of Harbor Strategic. I will kick off with you, Adrian. I think my biggest question, because of everything that we saw in 2023 of the state legislature, was there ever a moment where you yourself was genuinely surprised of what has happened so far in Michigan politics? Yeah, I mean, I think the most surprising thing to me, most of a year, how few wins Republicans got out of the process, considering how closely divided the two legislative chambers are. You know, Democrats are at 56 to 54 in the House, as slim majority in the Senate. Republicans don't seem to have played all their cards trying to negotiate their way into some of this legislation. Democrats, you know, were able to go it alone um, on a lot of things. They scraped up a couple of Republican votes here and there on some of their major legislative initiatives. But I think that uh, legislative Republicans left some wins on the table. What are your thoughts, John? I thought there were some interesting things. We don't really seem to be living in a time of bipartisanship. Uh, I think both sides recognized that and acted that way. So some of the more interesting things were the fact that the Violence Prevention Fund not only made it through, but made it through uh, because Representative Farhat noted he had a good working relationships with uh, Reps Mueller and uh, Harris to make that happen. And then it passed by a really wide margin. That's a uh, uh, a sign of hope in some ways. Not that they're going to come back and suddenly be best friends, but they were able to do that in a bipartisan way. Another surprise to me was the extent of the, the public Democratic infighting and the financial disclosure bills. There could have been a few of those in there where they're letting their amendments get put up and their verbal stuff, be their rhetoric be put out there because they needed to help a couple of members protect themselves. But um, all the way back to when Representative Grand kind of got shut down in committee going forward to all the amendments uh, being fast gaveled off, uh, like we experienced when uh, Republicans were in the minority, 
uh, and how Democrats experienced when they're in the minority. That was pretty interesting to me. And then maybe at least notable, whether it's a canary in the coal mine or not right now, is the recalls that took place um, around the the money the legislature passed to help do the battery plants and whether that kind of like has legs to come out of what happened with wind and solar siting and, and what that means going forward for uh, what led what heat legislators may feel um, beyond what the local government folks uh, got when they got recalled. I really liked what you had to say, Adrian, about Republicans not having a lot of wins in 2023. And you think about it, Senate Republicans, because of the way that the rules are designed, they had six immediate effect votes at their disposable that they could have used with negotiation power. And you even saw, I mean, you can make the case that this signy die, this early signy die, early adjournment is occurring because of things that did not get immediate effect, specifically the early presidential primary. Why do you think that is? Do you think that maybe Democrats did not even want to participate in negotiations, that it was easier to adjourn early than it was to come to agreement with each other? You know, that's certainly possible. And we don't know. Right. The Democratic and Republican legislative leaders aren't really talking um, about how those negotiations went to the extent that they even happened. Um, We don't know that they did. But that was that was maybe the most surprising missed opportunity from my vantage point as far as Republicans, especially um, once they got sign off from the RNC on this blended presidential primary process they're going to do next year. The opportunity was there to negotiate and give Democrats immediate effect on this so that they didn't have to adjourn early. Um, And so that there was an opportunity to legislate more and they could have extracted some real concessions from Democrats on that. They either didn't try or they failed. uh, They failed to negotiate effectively enough to get those concessions. Um, But those got left on the table this year. When I look back over time, I think about what wins have the the minority party had in the legislature. I I was reminded of this this the other day. When I was in the House, there was this really big thing um, from the House Democrats called DIME, Drug Immunity Must End. And uh, they didn't manage to get a win on that until last week. And (laughs) this is going back to 2005 in six. And when you're in the minority, you do tend to have to get into a fighting position. The leadership of your minority team is expected by the other members to do the dirty work to play out the fights and at least the rhetorical battles that go uh, that take place. And, and Representative Hall certainly is doing the job the caucus sent him there to do. He is a fighter by nature. I think the Democratic um, st- state party's PR campaign to maybe try to cut off his fundraising and stuff and calling him uh, Maga Matt and all that stuff. I think that probably only motivated him more. And I've thought about other folks in the minority that were kind of like well-suited to this stuff. And, you know, I mentioned the um, the dime stuff. Uh, Representative Byram at the time and her partner now, Mark Fisk, were amazing at that stuff. They were driving us insane. Uh, the only thing that we haven't passed yet apparently is Canadian trash. That came back to mind as well too. <laughs> Correct Roche was actually really better suited for the minority bomb throwing role than he probably was being speaker. And I think Matt is good at that. And that's what uh, the membership of those caucuses expect you to do. They'll figure out how to negotiate on their own, like Reps Mueller and uh, Harris did on the violence protection uh, package. But I, I wouldn't necessarily put a high bar up there for trying to get wins, quote unquote, as a minority. It's so crazy because I think when people were talking about the possibility of a split house, now that Kevin Coleman and Lori Stone, those two reps, won their mayoral races, there's kind of this talk about, could we ever see the golden Camelot that was the 1990s in the state house where you had a split house and people rotated gavels? And now we're having a conversation about 
Will the House not actually meet until after a special election? Where do you think, what are you hearing in those conversations? I think it's, um, I think the House will meet before new members get seated, but I don't think that they're going to do a lot. You know, certainly um, the composition of legislative committees in the House has not changed. And so there's an opportunity to do committee work when they come back. Right. Um, and Democrats will feel comfortable with that because they still have working majorities on those committees because they're appointed by the speaker. Um, so that's covered as far as Democrats are concerned. And I think you will see a pretty fair amount of committee work get done um, before uh, before new members are seated. In terms of floor action, I think you'll see a little bit of what we call the proverbial cats and dogs. Right. Legislation that's not super impactful, um, but they can easily pass with bipartisan majorities. And I think you will see some of that um, at the beginning of next year, basically just clearing the decks for the stuff that either has to happen or that's a big priority. The legislature really only has one constitutional duty. They have to pass a budget. Um, and they're certainly not going to attempt to pass budgets on the floor of the House until after they're at full strength. Yeah, um, I think a lot of that rings true. We could see a decent amount of committee work. Um, and that's where these, you know, committees being stacked. So far to the downside in the house anyway, we still could see work being done there. They're going to have to, they could do a lot of things in the background to get ready for when they come back and reading the comments from uh, Senate Majority Leader Brinks, you know, she's really almost agitated or at least disappointed that they're going away. She said she spent 10 years of her life getting to this point where she can do this stuff. I could see them still working on committee work and, and moving bills around, moving, sending things over to the house. There's a lot of PR work that can be done, obviously, around this, because if the Republicans decide to unpack this whole, we should have shared power, what are the Democrats doing? They're not doing much. I don't know that it changes any election results next fall, but it's it will fill the time. It'll be the void filler. The legislature uh, under the Democratic control could still run committee hearings and get headlines and stories as if they're still a meeting. Because, I mean, frankly, I think we all know that most of the public is not following this minute by minute. And most people wouldn't even know that they're not meeting. Or if they found out they weren't meeting, they'd probably go, oh, good. Uh, we're less at risk right now. <laughs> and I thought another thing you said, Adrian, is interesting. If we look back at some of the past, I looked at this sort of like a lame duck situation, except it was not a lame duck focused on cats and dogs like you talked about, Adrian, like would normally happen. It was focused on the big picture things that the governor was trying to do coming out of her what's next speech. You know, we look back at like when Governor Snyder was heading out, I think they passed over or nearly 400 bills in that time period. Back when I was in the legislature working there, we had the the budget showdown and, you know, Governor Granholm came out of the floor and shook hands with Chris Ward and they voted for a tax increase. That was a huge deal. And, you know, part of the GOP lore we were taught as staffers as well before my time, but was the showdown between then State Senator Debbie Stabenow and Governor Engler that led to Prop A. I mean, those were some massive big kind of lame duck sessions. Um, this one was focused way more on those big things. So there's a lot of lobbyists out there listening today who have a whole lot of bills that they wished could have gotten introduced, could have got a committee hearing, um, and their clients are going to be itching to see some kind of action. And that's why I think that we will see some kind of committee stuff going on during this break. When you think about some of the big things that got passed this year, what do you think is going to have to go back to the drawing board? Well, it seems pretty obvious that... um. Uh, on the number one, that Mayor Duggan does not quit. Uh, he'll be working away on his priorities. He managed to get the violence fund passed, like I mentioned earlier, but he wants that um, that property tax bill passed. And I have a feeling they are going to come back to the drawing board and keep working on it. And I would be surprised to see him go and lose on that again. So I think we're going to keep seeing uh, effort on that. 
I know that we have the split house votes now, but do you think that there's any issue that would make sense for the governor to call a special session before the end of 2023? I I don't know about a special session. Um, I think that there are a lot of issues that are percolating, sort of ripening right now, um, or have been hanging out there for a while, like, you know, Mayor Duggan's tax bill um, that you some early action on next year. You know, I, I don't think it's completely out of the realm of possibility that you could see some consequential legislation actually come up for a floor vote prior to the new members being seated. I doubt that would be budgets or anything like that. Uh, but there are some issues hanging out there like uh, that you could see some action on. But in terms of a special session, just the calendar is kind of working against you for that. Next week's Thanksgiving. Um, then we'll have a couple of weeks in December and then we'll be into the holidays. You know, so it's uh, if they were going to do something, it would have to be the first couple of weeks of December. And that strikes me as pretty unlikely. I think the more likely scenario is that, you know, they'll come back next year, um, get to work in committees, try and pass some stuff on the floor that they think that they can get enough bipartisan support for, which isn't much, right? We're at 54-54 and, and see them try and tackle it that way until they get their two new members or their two new members uh, seated um, and are back to full strength on the floor. Yeah, I tend to agree with that too. If the energy package had not been passed, then I could have seen a special session to come back and keep working on it or something like that. Uh, I'm guessing that Speaker Tate, if I know if I were Speaker Tate, I'd want to get on a plane, and go take a vacation for a while, not think about special sessions, committee hearings or anything else, and then come back and get to work. But I think for the governor right now, she kind of has this glide path all the way to the state of the state address. So it's kind of on her to fill this void. And I think you could tell by watching how some of her staff were not retweeting uh, MERS and AP and MLive stories. They're retweeting the New York Times and the Washington Post coverage of the energy package passing. They're going to be shopping that around the country to national news and saying, look at Michigan, look what a big deal we are. Look how I can run for president and look how I'm a leader on a progressive issue when I'm generally you know, defined as the, the kitchen table moderate Democrat, so to speak. So I think we're going to see a lot of motion and uh, activity uh, from the governor's team on that front. And I would guess that they would keep the special session thing in their pocket if things started to go sideways or the Republicans started to get some kind of toehold on making noise that they weren't Lansing, they weren't working, they weren't earning their paychecks, that kind of stuff. I know that's what I would do. I'd keep that in my pocket in case I needed to flip the lights back on for a little while and take back control of the the earned media narrative. Yeah, I guess, you know, I when I was talking about something coming, going back to the drawing board. I honestly, I think the clean energy by 2040 package, that is so massive. And there are carve outs, there are off ramps, clean energy, switching from carbon free to clean energy. What exactly is the definition of clean energy? Is it something that's evolving? I wonder, is that something that the legislature is going to have to create newer amendments on as future years come? Well, absolutely. That could be an issue. I mean, we saw the House pass the wrong uh, bill, or at least the la- the, the wrong uh, version of the bill. A lot of stuff was flying through. They did not really take uh, committee testimony when they passed the final bills, because I think the governor knew this was her main chance to get this thing done before everybody had to leave and disappear. But there clearly are going to end up being trailer bills and follow-ups to these things, because it was just too big, too in-depth, and not discussed enough in public to really vet these things out. And the opposition, which, you know, I have to acknowledge I worked with, with business groups, it's intense um, and it's big and I don't think they're done fighting on it. Why do you think that the energy issue is so juicy on a national level? Why is there so much 
and I, I keep on saying the word juicy, but juiciness when it comes to promoting political capital for the governor. It's it's an economic issue that she can point to that she got to win on, right? And it's popular with the base of the Democratic Party, which if the governor decides to run for higher office at some point is a positive boom for her. Um, it's an economic win, um, economic issue win that she can point to. Um, you know, whether you're supportive of the policy or not. And it's also, it's it's newsy, right? Michigan's not the only state where, um, you know, green energy, the environment, um, energy prices, all that sort of thing are live issues. That's true basically everywhere in the world right now. Um, and so particularly as the governor has positioned herself as a sort of national political figure, taking a whack at the energy issue in an environmental context makes all the political sense in the world for her. I think also um, the abortion issue, the reproductive rights issue um, is coming up in other states now. And they looked at Michigan and said, oh, look, we need to get this on the ballot. So we can see what just happened in Ohio. Uh, first, the legislature put something on the, the primary ballot that would have made it much harder to amend the Constitution. And it got dropped and beaten by the public. And then they came back for the November election and passed uh, re reproductive rights for the Ohio Constitution by a pretty decent margin. And the reason I bring that up is because the governor and her team and, and Michigan were a big step ahead on that. They already did that. And as far as being a motivating issue, um, in some ways, they're just sort of like tying up the loose ends on that right now in Michigan. So now while the other states are following Michigan on that, the governor jumps another step ahead and says, okay, now I'm going to be the lead on the environment and clean energy. Uh, and so she's another step ahead of everyone else. Um, so I think it's working out for her. Uh, in that sense, uh, I don't know what comes next after this step, but I think for a little while now, we're going to see her and her team really pushing that message out there. I do want to ask an elections related question. When you think about Westland and Warren, where Rep Stone and Coleman won their mayoral races, do you think that there are any holes of opportunity for Republicans to pursue those seats? Or do they just go too consistently blue that they're going to be more focused on the November 2024 elections as opposed to special victories? Well, I think anything can happen in a special election because it really special elections put way more of an emphasis on who the candidates actually are. And we saw that with Representative Glanville's win in Kent County. Um, the candidate actually matters when people are able to pay that close of attention to what's going on. Um, but in in this sense, I think the 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 Democrats and the governor didn't give a hoot about what would happen to the GOP presidential primary, or even knew that it would get into this sort of like disastrous mixed state of affairs that it's going to be in. And <laughs> some weird side effect here is I think there's the possibility that we'll see a progressive versus I don't want to it's not moderate it's the mainstream Democrats versus progressives. Are the progressives organized enough to recruit their own candidates in these replacement primaries? And because the presidential primary is so screwed up and sending Republicans who really turn out and care into caucus meetings, if the the primary elections for Stone and Coleman seats are on the presidential primary day, most of those GOP people are going to be sitting in a dang basement somewhere voting for Donald Trump, probably, instead of showing up at the caucus or at a, a primary election and casting their vote for the progressive and the Dem primary. So there will be a side effect they were aiming for. I think uh, will help them um, win these seats with the candidates that they need to uh, to get to 56. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Sitting in a dank basement somewhere. I like that. <laughs> the Iowa caucuses are glorified. I'm not sure what a Michigan set of caucuses is going to look like. But nonetheless, those hardcore GOP voters who maybe could have meddled in these damn primaries in these two seats, they're going to be off making sure they cast their votes for uh, 
for Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, and Nikki Haley, probably. When you think about what memory, what kind of politically affiliated memory that you personally have is going to stick out when you look back at 2023, what do you imagine already? The year's not over yet. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we've still got some runway for that. But, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I think honestly, it is the um, for me as somebody who, um, you know, largely worked for black Detroiters in the legislature, um, seeing Joe Tate sworn in as uh, Speaker of the House. That was a little bit all right from my perspective. I'll carry that one with me until I'm old enough for that. I've forgotten about my political career. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that we might look back and, and see that the ability of state government to jump in and help uh, even not just corporations, but like Michigan's main corporations, like the places that put Michigan and Detroit on the map, GM, Ford, the fact that that is now in this political environment spiraling out of control uh, to the point that people are getting recalled. Um, I think I'm not involved in anything on that front. So when I bring it up, it's just because it really sticks out to me. That we could see a lot more noise on that going forward in certain seats um, as far as the the citing votes. Uh, that, that may be a lot to come. But, you know, Samantha, both uh, Adrian and I having been around a long time, I think uh, we'd probably both say the more things change around the legislature, there's one thing that always stays the same. When there's a deadline and people have to stay there really late, shit gets done. Uh, and that happened again for uh, for Speaker Tate. Well, now I'm stuck on what you just said, Adrian. The year's not over yet. So even though we have this signy die week, what should we still be thinking about as we think about the rest of November, as we think about December? What what, what more room for chaos is there on our hands? Well, I know John has some strong opinions about this, too, so I'll just bring it up and we can yak about it. Um, <laughs> big, big Supreme Court oral arguments coming up next month um, okay. about adopt and amend and uh, the minimum wage tip credit issue. And so... That is a potential chaos bomb that could be sitting in the legislature's lap for a fix, um, you know, as they're thinking about what date they'd like to come back next year, um, depending on how oral arguments go um, with the Supreme Court and what the Supreme Court decides there. That could be a big issue that um, I don't think that the governor and the legislature are thinking about all that much that could be, um, you know, sitting there waiting for them um, when they're ready to get back to business. Absolutely. And what Adrian's talking about is, you know, with the the 2018 adopt and amend when the one fair wage group sued to try to stop that and say it's unconstitutional it started working its way through the courts ever since 2018 and lo and behold there are going to be hearings coming up uh next month about this where they're saying that that maneuver by the legislature was unconstitutional that they couldn't adopt and amend in the same area but then flash forward to 2023 on the new ballot initiative that they're working on and the proponents of you know, one fair wage and the proponents for the 2024 ballot initiative they want to get put on say, oh, uh, yeah, there was an error in there. It doesn't really apply to more than uh, 10% of businesses in Michigan, so 90% won't count. Well, we'll just have the legislature fix that. Kind of sounds like adopt and amend to me. It's pretty insane to think that on one hand, they're in court for five years suing to say that adopt and amend is unconstitutional. And then when there's a screw up now here in the present, they're saying, we'll just have the legislature fix that. And that is something that a bipartisan legislature could fix and work on overall, minimum wage and the tip credit. Um, and so I certainly agree with Adrian, that's something we could see come back. And that is an issue yeah. I work on. So I'll tip my head on that too. 
Yeah, that's um, John's spot on there. The only thing I think he missed uh, is a tiny little tidbit, which is hilarious, which is that the um, these same people that are arguing that adopt and amend is unconstitutional, um, but also that the legislature, you know, can go back and fix the problem in their ballot language are still insisting that that was not an error. They actually did intend to um, uh, they did intend to, uh, you know, exempt 90 percent of the businesses in the state. So just through some um, some some bad political consulting and uh, legal work has brought us uh, to this pass. And now it's going to be on the governor and the legislature to clean up the mess. Right. So I think a lot of people are going to be looking for the kind of questions and the tone that comes up in these Supreme Court hearings. I think it's the end of the first week in December or second week in December. Um, And suddenly people are going to start trying to read the tea leaves and see which way the court might be going. And suddenly that's going to mean there might need to be some kind of legislative fix. It's not what the governor and the, the legislature was looking to deal with. But, you know, when I go back and look at the year in stories and I see the one common issue that the quadrant said that they're interested in working on, you know, it's the economy. Um, and that is a huge economic issue. Adrian Heeman of Grassroots Midwest and John Selleck of Harbor Strategic. Thank you both so much for joining today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Joining us for our second segment of today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast is Chief Growth Officer Hillary Doe of the Governor's Growing Michigan Together Council. We additionally have a University of Michigan social worker, Fatima Salman, who served on the Higher Education Work Group for the Council and assisted with organizing the Council's public engagement programs. Thank you both for joining us on today's episode. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Now, Hillary, I want to know a little bit more about you. Obviously, the governor announced the creation of this council at the very start of the summer at the Mackinac Policy Conference hosted by the Detroit Regional Chamber. How did you end up here? How, how did someone come up to you and say, hey, we're creating a council that's all going to be about holistic population growth? What does that even mean? Yeah, well, actually, the um, original conversation about the role was really about, you know, the challenge that we're facing as a state. You know, Michigan's one of about 34 percent of states that have been seeing population declines, many more that have been seeing stagnation. And depending on what, you know, your community, um, rural communities have really been a canary in the coal mine for a while, um, you know, really articulating the challenge, being able to maintain their public services, maintain, you know, their public workers um, have fill these critical workforce gaps. Whereas other parts of the state have, you know, really seen the lack of population growth as, you know, stymieing potential opportunity we have to lead some, you know, big industries, high growth industries, EV transition, the green transformation. Um, So no matter your connection, it was really clear that it was critical. Michigan turned this around, but it's not a surprise that the chief growth officer position um, seems new to you because it is obviously it's the first one in Michigan, but it's also um, the first chief growth officer named in any state in the country. Um, And that's a reflection that, you know, even though we have a shared problem with many other states, um, we're really going to set out to be the first one to solve it. So, you know, my background was originally in 
public policy. I ran a think tank for a long time. And then most recently, I was in the private sector running a software company that was helping folks market and run their movements around the world. Um, this really feels like it will require a little bit of both. Um, a lot of, you know, that policy work, of course, for us to continue to do product improvement on the state and make Michigan a better and better place to call home, especially for young folks, young families, young workers, but also will require us to really think about how we tell our story to each other, to folks across the country and around the world, frankly, um, to make sure that folks know what a, what a wonderful place we already have here. And just to confirm, you all have a big deadline coming up, correct? Don't you have to ultimately present a policy battle plan at the end of this year? Yeah, definitely. So my role extends a bit beyond the council. I'm sort of tasked with growing the population, whether that takes policy programs or pilots or frankly, marketing and branding. But the council specifically was sort of the first action um, of that effort. Um, and yes, they are wrapping up putting policy recommendations on the governor's desk um, by mid-December. So we've definitely been in a sprint. The work groups had a couple months and the council now has a couple months to review those work group recommendations and make sure they deliver bold solutions to the governor by, by pretty soon here. You know, I would love to hear both a response, both from you, Hillary and Fatima. A lot of criticism that this council has received is that it's ultimately just going to be designed to justify tax increases proposed by the governor. What is your response to those criticisms? Yeah, well, I can't wait to hear Fatima's because obviously she was in the day to day in the work groups. But I can just tell you my experience. My experience is that you know, we have a big challenge to solve here and that as I've been traveling the state, we've done over 70 events, engaged 3000 plus folks in every corner of our state. It's very clear that folks want to take this on. They want to be heard. They have a vision for growth um, across our state and are really serious about, you know, us taking it on and getting started. So I've been really so impressed and inspired by the work group members and Michiganders from truly each side of the partisan spectrum, every background leaning in and saying, let's, you know, figure out a path forward here, irrespective of our differences, taking this seriously. And so I really would push back on that and say, you know, read the work group recommendations, going to go, go to growingmichigan.org and see the kind of bold policy solutions across a really diverse range of topics that folks have linked into, agreed on, built consensus around and said, you know, we want to drive these forward. But I'm so curious to hear your feedback, Fatima. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. You know, when you look at the way that the work groups were created, there was four separate work groups and they were all on different aspects on how to really create population change, right? So down to like from K-12 to higher education, but even to infrastructure and what's going to help people in staying here in terms of like greening and infrastructure changes. We had the best and the brightest of Michigan on these work groups, and they were bipartisan. They were people from all walks of life, all parts of the or all parts of the state. And to bring all those people in a room with such expertise and lived experience, what we were asked to do is bring your boldest and craziest and most amazing ideas. It wasn't like the regular, you know, it was like, think outside the box, think what really we can make, how we can make Michigan change. To couple that with like the nuances and the experiences, lived experiences of the people on the ground through the town halls really is going to create something incredibly exciting, I think, you know, like you're not getting the regular old, same old, same old recommendations that haven't been working, quite frankly, right? We're, we're getting recommendations that are hopefully from experts down to the grassroots and creating change for Michigan. 
And as of right now, though, the council is being reported on as eyeing various tax increases. Is that accurate? How would you describe it? What is it that you're specifically eyeing right now that you can share on this podcast today? Yeah, I'd say that the, you know, for the focus first has been and um, up to this point has been continues to be. Um, policy. It's policy first. It's what solutions do we want to implement and do Michiganders and want to encourage the council to implement the work groups want to suggest to the council that they think will drive us forward. So we've really only been in the policy space so far. Now we're shifting for this like sort of second half of the council's deliberation, certainly into impact assessment. So what they're doing is looking through each of those suggestions and saying, hey, if we think these will really move the needle on population growth, you know, what would they cost? How much would they grow the population? Who would they impact? And assessing each of those individual potential solutions to decide what they want to put forward. And it's absolutely the case that, you know, when you want to do something new, it probably costs something. And so that's part of the conversation in that context, for sure. Um, and there's a lot of deliberation about that, as you can imagine, because folks are so diverse. Um, and the initial instinct from a lot of council members, as you've probably heard in the public meetings, is let's look for things that aren't working, that we're already funding. Is there Are there opportunities to shift budget um, just as much as anyone's suggesting, you know, let's also look if we're investing enough. Um, there's been some initial analysis um, that was presented at the last public meeting, for example, that showed, you know, Michigan over time has become a relatively low tax state um, relative to all of our neighbors and uh, most other states. Is that serving us or not? Um, has been part of the conversation, but really only in the context of serving these policy ideas that we want to put forward. Um, so it's, it's certainly not, you know, tax first. No one wants taxes for taxes sake. And I also think that there's a broad consensus of folks across our state and across the workers and on the council who say, and we can't do nothing. We can't sit on our hands and do nothing. We need to lean in and make change. So um, I've been really inspired to see how policy first all of this has been solutions minded. And now they're moving into, you know, impact assessment. Now, when you look at other states, states where you actually see population growth as opposed to population stagnation, what do you think it is that the ideal state brings to the table to make themselves more attractive? I'll share a little bit. And then Fatima, if there's anything you've heard that you want to share, do feel free to jump in, of course. But um, when we've looked across, you know, all states that are growing, there are obviously lots of different archetypes. Some benefit from sunbelt weather trends, you know, others have certain industries. So there's there's lots of things that, you know, are different. But there are three things that they tend to have in common, no matter whether you're talking about a Colorado or a Washington or a Minnesota or a Texas. And that tends to be growing uh, median incomes and average incomes above the living wage. Um, the second indicator tends to be percentage of your population with a bachelor's degree or sort of a higher and growing number of folks that are credentialed and getting degrees to allow them to access, you know, 21st century opportunity. And the third tend to be regions that are driving growth that have, you know, pretty vibrant, transit-rich, walkable communities with amenities that are particularly appealing to, you know, young folks, because young folks are moving a fair amount. Of the folks that are pretty high mobility, recent graduates, young families are, are chief among them. And so those three elements tend to be the common things in all of those growing places. We've really leaned into that and thought about how do we stack up? in that regard. And hence, you know, the thinking from the education work groups, for example, about how to make sure everyone has access to shared prosperity and more folks can get those credentials and some of the jobs, talent, people recommendations about, you know, thinking about connecting folks to, to higher wage um, industries and some of those high growth industries. But I'm curious, Fatima, from your experience, if there's anything you'd like to add. 
Yeah, actually, I was just listening to a report the other day that was given to business leaders in Michigan. It's about opportunity, right? Opportunity and how and to have a good life where you're at. Now, the interesting thing was the mandate was actually specifically how do we keep Gen Z here in Michigan, right? So we were thinking about this younger population, thinking about like, as you grow a family, what is it that you need here, right? And, and what's interesting is, is that a lot of it's also centered around community and, and family-based values, right? And we've got that in Michigan, which is good to know, right? So it's like, how do you also like think about infrastructure, think about opportunity, think about employment opportunities, think about the industries that are here in Michigan that will allow us to keep our Michiganders here and bring more. Now, Hillary and Fatima, did you both like grow up in Michigan? Did you come to Michigan? Tell me a little bit more about your Michigan journey of how you got here. I did. I grew up in Monroe County, um, sort of downtown river. And my parents were both public school teachers in Monroe County as well. You know, they have a, a really Michigan story where, you know, their parents moved from, you know, Appalachia and from, you know, other parts of the country during the auto industry boom. Um, so, you know, one of the joys, honestly, of my career has been getting the chance the last few months to travel around and do all of these events and engage with thousands and thousands of Michiganders and hear their Michigan stories, um, whether they've, you know, arrived recently or, or been here a long time. But that's my background, went to University of Michigan and then left the state for about 10 years um, before we moved back in 2018. And now we're very happy residents of the city of Detroit. So I guess I'm a boomerang. That's what I've been told. <laughs> they call us. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a Michigander also. I was, um, I've been here since I was five months old, born in Canada, but moved here at five months. My dad was part of Chrysler. He worked there for so long and we've always had an American car in our driveway. Also very American story. My parents are both immigrants from India and also came during the population boom and, and also created community here, right? So I only lived outside of Michigan for three years, probably the hardest three years of my life, just because I was like, I'm so used to Michigan. Um, and I live here now. I grew up in Troy, went to University of Michigan, undergrad, grad school, work there now as well. So Michigander through and through and toot my horn about Michigan everywhere I go. I'm not involved on different in different national boards. And I always say all good things start from Michigan. That's what population growth is going to do, too. It's going to start from Michigan. I feel that young people just ultimately have an appetite to get out of the state that they grew up in and to have an experience somewhere else. How do you how do you combat that? How do you combat that? There's just a natural longing to leave so that you can have an experience outside of your comfort zone. I think that's great for what it's worth. Again, I left for 10 years and came back. So the mission here isn't to say to anyone, hey, if you always wanted to live in New York City, you know, think again. Um, the mission instead, I think, is to say you know, hey, if you feel that you want to have an opportunity, you should know that you can do that right here in Michigan. And if you want to go, that's great, but you should never feel like you've got to go in order to make it. Um, and that we've done the work to, you know, make the change required and also tell the story. So we've bucked any perception that's not accurate, an accurate reflection of who we are. So folks can see that too. If you do kind of polling about what folks think about Michigan across the country, they might say it's old and cold. That's sort of my, you know, short assessment. Um, and we need to make sure we're doing the work to tell our full story. Um, so when folks are making that choice, they can say, hey, what is Michigan? What does Michigan have to offer? Um, and, and decide whether they want to stay now or they want to come back. Also, we can make that pitch to young folks who are growing up in all other places when they're setting out to have their first experience that they can have that in Michigan. When you actually look at migration trends, 
we're pretty good relative to most states on retaining um, young folks. You know, we're we're doing a pretty good job at that, actually. We could retain a few more, and that would be great for our population growth goals. So we're going to put that out there and continue to ensure that we have those vibrant communities. We have rising median incomes. We have, you know, increasing numbers of folks that are credentialed because we see that those three things drive population growth. So we're going to work on that, make sure our value prop is great for young people. Um, but we do have pretty good retention numbers. What we don't see as much are um, young folks from other places choosing Michigan. And we also don't see our folks from out of state who come to go to school here um, staying with as much um, as, at as high a rate as we might like. So we really want to wrap arms around our communities with really, as it relates to retention and attraction, make sure that they could see themselves here. And if they want to set out and you know tell the world how great Michigan is, uh, live in New York City, live in L.A. for a while, great. But we also want them to know that they can come back home and build their lives here. Um, so, so that's really our intention to continue to build that value prop for everyone who's already here and anyone who wants to join us. Fatima, I want to poke your mind a bit as someone who dealt with higher education in this process. I personally went to CMU where they've seen a kind of a very drastic decline in enrollment. What do you think is the biggest obstacle facing our higher education institutions when it comes to attracting new students? Oh my gosh, I think there's a lot, but I think you also have to make the distinction between between the smaller colleges and the larger colleges. What we have seen is for example, within the smaller colleges, that people do end up sticking around from those colleges in the state of Michigan, right? But the larger colleges, what ends up happening is that there's opportunity with those degrees to get to get somewhere else outside of Michigan. And so I think first and foremost, what we do need to do is make sure that there's that alignment between the opportunities and the education that's offered at these larger colleges and the opportunities that you have here in Michigan. That's first and foremost. How do you keep people, I mean, lowering tuitions, right? Giving incentives for people to stay. Loan pay, payback, right? That's a big deal. Loans are a big deal. That's Student debt is huge right now, right? That's not just a state level issue, but that's a federal issue, right? So student debt across the board is what's stopping most kids from, from this idea of college. And I think that, that if we can even think about how to even tackle that, I think that's going to help students in general. We were talking about state-by-state comparisons and why do states sometimes see more population growth. It makes me ask about taxes. Don't people want to live where their taxes are low? Don't people want to live in places where the cost of living is low and they can go on family trips to Disney World and, you know, be able to pay for necessities and wants? We're really following the data. So, you know, we didn't come into this with any expectations. We really, you know, are following the data and looking across states. We're actually also commissioning an independent study to look at population growth um, in other states and comparison states um, so that we can try to see what the ties that bind are between states. But what I can tell you from the data so far is that there isn't much correlation. There are lots of archetypes for growth, certainly. Um, Some of those are in states that happen to be low tax. Many growth states aren't, um, places like you know Washington, Colorado, Minnesota, and Michigan, again, is pretty low tax relative to all of our neighbors, um, and we obviously aren't seeing population growth. So um, it just doesn't seem like a very highly correlated, you know, highly correlated factor. But if we, you know, if that doesn't seem to be true or that doesn't bear out, we're ready to tackle it. And 
Um, so, you know, we're really listening and following the data and also listening to, to what Michiganders are, are saying to us, you know, as we travel across the state. I'd also point out that, you know, in addition to being uh, a state that is negative net migration, so, you know, more people are leaving than coming. That's one of the things we want to turn around. We also are aging more quickly than our peers because we're losing our, our younger folks who are choosing to go, you know, build their families elsewhere, which is one of the things Fatima mentioned and one of the things the council's really thinking about and trying to turn around. And if you look at cities where young folks are moving, you see, you know, the New Yorks and the San Francisco's and those certainly aren't lowest cost of living and they aren't lowest tax. So instead, I think what folks seem to really be solving for are those three metrics I've already mentioned are, you know, that amenity rich, walkable region that they can be in, um, you know, those opportunities and sectors that tend to be higher median income. And um, you'll see clusters of folks, you know, with um, more advanced degrees and, and opportunities and credentialing so that they can get access to those opportunities. So those seem to be the common factors. And we ultimately need to come out the other side with a plan that works for Michigan. And so really what I'm hearing from Michiganders across the state and also from the council's deliberations are we need to think about how to push on those three factors. And we also need to make sure that we do our best to maintain the things that are great about Michigan, like our natural beauty and natural resources, conserving those and making sure folks have access to those, as well as ensuring that our cost of living stays you know, pretty affordable because that allows Michiganders who are here to stay. And it also can be an enticing factor. It sort of doesn't seem to be a sufficient factor, like enough on its own, but an enticing factor to, if we have those other three things going for us, you know, tip folks into really wanting to, to choose Michigan. Um, I would say lastly, that shows up particularly in housing. So, um, you know, affordability of housing is critical. Folks tell us across the state, we need to think about a solution for housing, both on the stock and affordability side. And in our national poll of young folks across the country in cities that are growing among 18 to 34 year olds, the one thing they said would cause them to think of a new place to call home was access to affordable housing and ownership and, you know, a down payment program. So I think there's some real wisdom for us to think about there. Fatima, as someone who's been inside the room, how stressed out is everyone becoming as we approach the end of the year deadlines? You know what? You know, they had some of the best and brightest consultants that came in. When we first got the call to join the council, one of the main questions was, do you have the time? And when they asked me that, I was like, no, I don't, but I'll make the time. And I think it was was interesting is every single person in the room was some of the busiest people in the state, but all made the time and effort to be there and to give the recommendations. And it wasn't stressful. If you have the best and the brightest rooms and this amazing format, I mean, honestly, the ideas that have come about, the interactions, the conversations, it was actually fun, you know, and it was also like, what are we going to do to keep people here in this state that we love? Right. So it wasn't anything tedious. It was more like our own passions, thinking about the recommendations, thinking about what it can, how to get others to get on board with making what, what makes Michigan so great. And it wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't stressful at all. That didn't even feel like stressful, honestly. Yeah, I think it felt more of a real call to service from everyone, truly. I mean, again, I don't have a vote, right? Um, I'm uh, just having the sort of honor of getting to watch it happen. But it's been really feels like a call to service, trying to listen to and serve Michiganders across the country who've raised their hand. You know, we've received now more than 10,000 survey responses. Um, folks want to be heard on this. They want us to take action. Um, and so, you know, that's that's really the tone that I'm feeling in the room. What do you think is going to be the lifespan on this council? How long? Is, because isn't the goal here to be kind of one and done? 
The goal is to deliver recommendations to the governor. I mean, this is a critical issue, so they're really trying to get those, you know, quickly out the door. Um, but, you know, it's certainly not one and done because my role exists and my team was created, you know, to make sure that this lives on and that we implement these things. Nobody wants to spend their life hours, you know, writing something that sits on a shelf. And again, we have 10,000 survey responses, had over 70 events. Michiganders are coming out. They want us to take action on these things. They want us to lean in and try to help them solve population growth in their community. So that's absolutely a responsibility I feel strongly. And, you know, after the recommendations are delivered, we're really at the beginning. The goal then is to chase, you know, implementation on recommendations we think will be, you know, help us drive the progress and to continue to work with communities across our state to build growth plans that are regional um, and, and really turn this around. We want to help lead the nation on, on solving this problem. You know, I just want to also mention that it wasn't just the council and the work groups, right? That there was this element that Hillary made it a point to do to go and meet, listen to the people. I think that's a really important part of this is that it wasn't just the best, you know, just a bunch of minds in a room, but there's also, there was so much opportunity for Michiganders to actually say what they felt and how they felt and how they felt they could change Michigan and, and get people here. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of this, in my opinion is that we listen to the people on the ground. And as a community organizer, I always believe that the solutions actually come from the people on the ground. I really believe that. And if there's one thing that I think is, is incredible here is that every region, every area, every part portion of Michigan, every type of Michigander was surveyed and still can give recommendations to this council. Fatima Salman, a member of the Higher Education Work Group, a part of the Governor's Michigan Together Council. Additionally, Chief Growth Officer Hillary Doe. Thank you all so much for joining us on today's episode of MERS Monday. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. for this segment of the MERS Monday podcast is first-year state representative Jamie Green, who represents sections of Eastern Lapeer, Western St. Clair, and Northern Macomb County. Prior to becoming a legislator this year, Rep Green has served as a cryptologist for the U.S. Navy and was an elected member of the Richmond City Council. Now, Rich Richmond is where Blake Cider Mill is, right? It's in Armada, but it's just down the road, yes. Okay, and that's your district, right? Yes, all of the Blakes reside in my district, correct. I need to kick off with probably the most important question of this segment. Which Blakes cider is your favorite? The hard ciders, which one's your favorite? That's a tough decision, really, because they keep coming up with some new flavors and, and styles and stuff. So I really like I really like Rainbow Seeker. How about you, Danielle? Do you have a favorite? I don't know if I do. I'm trying to think. I'm not. I'm not a huge cider girl, so I don't know if I do, but, you know, I really, I appreciate them. Now, okay, now we're going to pivot back to the political chat. Uh, but Rep Green, Green, the previous week marked the final re week of regular session days of 2023 before the legislature formally adjourns on November 14th, which is tomorrow for those listening to our podcast today. I would say that I imagine the theme of this episode to be surprises. As someone who served in the minority this year as a first-time legislator, was there anything that occurred this year that deeply surprised you? Well, I guess I, 
I didn't, I was walking into the unknown. So I didn't know what I didn't know. I would say no surprises. Disappointment would be the better word than surprises. Can you talk a little bit about what's disappointed you? So I guess I really thought that there were things that would be, we would work more together across the aisle. I would have my voice heard. I would join in partnerships. And actually, I kind of even was told that in the beginning of the year, like, for example, the teacher evaluation. I That was actually something I wanted to tackle as well, along with our statewide testing. And I really believe Matt Colazar and I were cut out of that picture together. I don't even know if he even had the opportunity to have a say in that as well, because that was something we discussed that we wanted to work on together, that we really desired a bipartisan support. I, I With the new term limits, I just have this feeling that we're going to be having a game of tennis back and forth with the legislature, and we need to start working together more. And that was uh, that would be the most disappointing thing. Do you think it's an issue of leadership versus non-leadership? Is it an issue of Republicans versus Democrats? Is it Senate versus House? What are the dynamics that basically take a bill and then have it get lost in transition of what it originally was? I would have to, I would, I can only suspect. So this is just my, I don't know this for a fact, but I would believe it. There are a few people that control Lansing and what they say goes. Now, who those people are, I have yet to identify them. I sort of want to hone in a little bit. You know, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is because you were so vocal when talking about some of these clean energy packages that we saw moving through, you know, the House Energy Committee and the floor in the last few weeks. One of those is the Senate's Clean Energy by 2040 package, and the other is the state-run project citing legislation that originated in the House. You know, can you tell me a little bit about those projects and, you know, why you oppose them initially and through, you know, their passage? Well, I will say that that experience was absolutely bonkers and insane. And I'm I'm still feeling the effects of what it's like to not have your voice heard or not have your constituents' voices heard. Uh, what they rolled out was a very aggressive wind and solar plan. And, and please, let's not call it clean because when you talk about wind and solar from the cradle to the grave, from mining, the minerals, the cobalt, the lithium, that is needed, the manufacturing, the production, um, manufacturing in China, the shipping of all the products the, to the final destination. Until then, they are retired. It is not clean energy. So let's just call it what it is. It is a wind and solar, aggressive wind and solar product, um, projects. And the thing is, is to be that aggressive when, with wind and solar, you have to have a vast amount of land. And land in Michigan is, of course, abundant right now because that land is used up by our agriculture from it being harvesting the trees and the forestry that's part of agriculture to the soybeans, to the cash crops, to the vegetables that we have. And all the land pretty much in Michigan is taken up and something is going to have to change. We are going to need hundreds of thousands of acres in order to achieve that. And that is why they needed that solar siting to change because the land is already spoken for. Local municipal governments already have their master plans and their local ordinances designated for solar. You would be surprised that they actually have built out into their master plans 
solar siting. And it would be like setting aside a couple hundred acres for solar and for wind. And they have already done that. But now because of this aggressive wind and solar plan, they are going to need more land than what they have set out. It's more than a couple hundred acres, because if we have seen the reports coming, it's hundreds of thousands of acres. So if the state wants to achieve that, they have no choice but to usurp those local ordinances and those local master plans and just take over. And that is where I really felt we didn't have a voice. We have already had elections in the state of Michigan, in these municipalities, uh, voting on these ordinances, voting on these, and the people don't want them. And you can just see, as in last Tuesday, when we had those elections, that all of those, uh, the Goshen Project, those other those other, uh, even it wasn't just that the one over on the west side, we even had, even in my own district, we had uh, recalls that were all successful. And it is incredibly difficult to recall an elected official and they were all access successful. So these communities do not want the wind and solar plans. And already, you know, they talk about like natural gas and nuclear, those are still, in the local ordinances, those are still locally cited. And we have a beautiful brand new natural gas plant just down the street from me here in, in Representative Du Boyer's district. And they did a really good job at working with the local communities. They retired a coal plant to build that natural gas plant. And it is, uh, it is so efficient, it is so clean, and it just hums along that you don't even realize that it's part of the natural landscape anymore. And I think there are other ways to to address our clean energy. And if that's retiring coal plants and going to other, and there was even probably things we haven't even discovered or invented. Uh, we just even had, what was it, fission was just discovered this last spring. So are we going to hamstring ourselves by handing this aggressive wind and solar plan so because we're going to be tied to it, because it's financially we are going to be tied to it, uh, are we going to lose out on some incredibly fantastic technologies that are clean technologies, new technologies, technologies that are going to power us for hundreds of years by, uh, by chaining ourselves essentially to wind and solar? You'll hear backers of the Clean Energy by 2040 package and essentially kind of the wind and solar state-run project siting. You'll hear them talk about a farmer who their whole family is about to retire, someone who owns agricultural land and they're about to lose it. And they're able to sell to one of these commercial projects and make a ton of money. But as someone who actually represents agricultural landowners and people who are involved with the farming community, what are you hearing from your constituents about this package? That that was one person in the entire state who was given the farm who doesn't want to farm. And so instead of selling her land to other farmers or leasing it out to other farmers, she got the easy way out. And and my community, they are all bonding together and they would prefer to buy each other's farms or lease each other's farms before selling these uh, to these these lucrative opportunities. But there's also even, they're leasing some land up north that they have not paid their lease yet. So the, I think this needs a, a lot more investigation than what is being touted 
as then we're they're giving this opportunity up because they have the opportunity to sell the land for what it's worth to other farmers who are trying to grow their farm, who are trying to fight the mass commercial operations that we have out West, because I've got so many farms who want to keep farming locally and who want to do it families. So that I would just say that the, the people who want to farm outweighs those who want to sell and lease their land. I know that, you know, the bill is passed was a little bit different as what was introduced. And some Democrats said that, you know, the introduction of some amendments that would quite a few amendments, actually, that would increase the ability for local governments to have a say would kind of address some of these concerns. Do you feel that those amendments accomplished that? Uh, no, I do not. And anytime I'm learning that you slap a bunch of amendments and substitutes on a bill on the floor, it was a piece of garbage to begin with. So, uh, no, I think it's all smoke and mirrors because ultimately the state will get the final say. So if a community votes yes, that they want to give up hundreds of thousands of acres to of land to the solar siting, then, of course, they'll have a say in it. But if they vote no, if they want, if they do not want it, there is nothing stopping those wind and solar companies from going directly to the MPSD to get the siting accomplished. I have a quick question about this package, and then I want to move on to some other legislation and issues. But when you were on the Richmond City Council, how long would you say that it took to pass an ordinance? Uh, I think it depended on what it was. We actually, before I left, passed a solar ordinance, and it probably took about six to nine months to go through the process because it does, you need to have public hearings. That's the biggest thing is you need to give notice, ample notice, and I even think that might be required by law, ample notice of when you're going to have a public hearing. And you need to have a couple public hearings uh, before you pass the ordinance. And then you have to have a first reading and a second reading and final passage, just like we do in the legislature. But the difference is, is we don't do it all in one night. We do it in after every meeting or we pause. And I guess that's the thing where, um, Government should not happen hastily. We sh it, there is no emergency. Nobody is dying over wind and solar siting. Nobody is dying over any ordinances that we have. So things should happen very cautiously and carefully and well thought out and to, to really examine the unintended consequences of an ordinance or of a statute of a law that you may, you may pass. And so that's why it does take a little bit longer because you have the committees that they are the pro the true process that it goes through a piece because essentially an ordinance is like a piece of legislation that you have the introduced idea it has to get worked out it has to be grappled with then it has to be presented to the public multiple times so they can have a say come back and change and then to the final the 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 legislative body that can then take a look at it and, and, and like first reading, second reading passage. And that usually we only meet every other week or sometimes they only get ever, every month. And so that's why the process is a little bit tarried. No, because so, I know that this citing bill was ultimately amended to allow a local government to certify projects as long as they met state standards. But it kind of seems that if a community already doesn't have these state standards, it could take them basically a year, if not more, to get the ordinance that applies that would give them certification power. I would say they could they could wrap it up in about a year, but why does it have to happen so quickly? 
why 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 does that something that's going to change the entire landscape and dynamic of their community because you're taking a piece of land that once was in production that once fed people or animals that once uh produced trees that uh and then you are remote you're taking that away so I, I, again i am completely fine with government moving more slowly and thoughtfully i want to talk about the prop one financial disclosure legislation that ultimately deals of candidates, legislators, statewide office executives making filing financial reports annually. You voted against this package, correct? Yes, I did. May I ask why? Because it didn't go far enough. Um, There were a, a tremendous amount of loopholes. And we kind of had the joke when we were getting a little saucy sassy on the floor at 2 a.m., which, come on, who passes a transparency package at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning? That is not very transparent. Um, we, You know that there was a funny meme that was, hide your wives, hide your kids. Well, hide your wives, hide your kids, hide your uh, travel, hide your gifts, because that's exactly what you can still do in the state of Michigan, because you can hide your assets under your spouses, you can hide your assets under your kids, you still don't have to fully disclose your travel and gifts. And I guess here's the thing is, I I actually there are some states that have no caps on any of this, they have no caps on contributions, they have no caps on, uh, on any of it, but they disclose everything. So they don't need to have a separate CTE, they don't need to have a majority fund, they don't need to have a C4, they don't need to have a five, whatever, there's all these crazy accounts that people have, they just have one account, and you can see the cash flow in and the cash flow out. And and like I gave um, in my floor speech that we should be like NASCAR drivers, and we should say who our sponsors are. And this is brought to you by no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> But but that's that's we we should we should disclose who who gives us money who supports us. Uh, I don't know why we want to hide it. There you know we both know we're we're kidding ourselves if there aren't. We had legislators. It was in the paper that went to Rio de Janeiro, went to Israel, went to like and and you know what that's fine if you believe that the the purpose of going on these trips. Um, and actually conferences, I think those are really important. Democrats, just like Republicans, should go to conferences and get training and hear what other legislators across the country are doing successfully in their states. But we don't need to hide it. Just just say who paid for it. That's that's all we are asking. It seemed like this package, you know, when it went up on the board last week, had a lot of bipartisan opposition and some bipartisan support as well. Were there conversations happening across the aisle during this time? I, the, I, yes, the, the freshmen were kind of getting a little bit fed up and that this is not why we came here. This is not what we wanted to do. And we cultivated relationships and we started talking to each other because we were frustrated because we did want transparency. We did want, um, the, the lid to be blown off. And on all of our financial disclosures and, and FOIA requests, we, we, we should be held accountable. We are trusted. We are entrusted with billions of dollars, billions of dollars. And that, that is a heavy burden to have. And then if you are compromised in any way, 
think about that if a person is, and we, 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 we've already experienced what happens when people are compromised and things don't ever turn out well. So let's take away the opportunity for being compromised and, and let's expose it and just have it be out in the open. And yes, there were the freshman class. We got a little bit done. We, we, we wanted, we wanted change to happen. And, and I guess you could say we lost. I was a little bit curious when something wasn't more debated on. I know that, you know, having to disclose an asset or a non-state income source where you're earning at least $1,000, do you think a legislator or a candidate should be able, should have to specify if that at least 1000 is 30,000? Is it 50,000? Is it 100,000 and upward? Because I know some people have said that the reason why you don't have to specify how much you're making from that asset or income source is because they don't want to create a wealth contest within the legislature. Well, that's an interesting concept. I still think you should have a little bit of buckets. I would say what is the average pay that that the average salary in the state of Michigan? And do you make do you have more check? Yes. I mean, we don't need to go into the details. And I, I did make this as a statement. I didn't want anybody's salary specifically, especially our spouses, because we want them to remain competitive in their job. And so I didn't think we needed to be specific to the nickel. But if you are making more than $55,000, yes, why not check yes? Um, but I mean, you could get if their spouse... I, I, that's that's a great question. That actually was I was never part of these conversations. So that was that was a new concept that you just shared with me. Now, obviously, we have the early signy die this week. We have a split house technically after two lawmakers won their mayoral races. Are you nervous about what the start of twenty twenty four is going to look like? How productive do you think the house is about to be? Well, I'm pretty sure it was very clear that Speaker Tate was uh, grabbing his gavel and taking it home with him. And so um, I, I'm i pretty sure we're just going to come in January 10th and we will not see each other until after the elections of the replacements of Representative Coleman and Representative Stone. Uh, he was very clear. And I guess I'm, I'm just because of that's the quotes that the media shared that we, I know, uh, my leader, Matt Hall, is ready to dig in. There is a lot of bipartisan stuff we absolutely have to get get through. We, we have got to talk about roads. We have got to talk about tax policy. There are basic things. We've got to address the budget before May. So I'm very curious if we're going to come back together. I don't foresee that actually happening uh, just because it, it, it was made crystal clear on how we ran the last two weeks. There wasn't any bipartisanship. So the word bipartisanship is non-existence in the House right now. So when you have a 54-54 split, um, uh, you're not going to be getting, um, it, it's, it's unfortunate that, but actually kind of fortunate because then we won't be passing any more crazy stuff. So my district is kind of super excited that we're going to stop the bleeding for a little bit. You know, it seems like in the past 
few weeks alone, there's been, you know, quite a bit moving through the chamber. And, you know, throughout the year, there was even more that you, you know, you can look back on. And, and I feel like there's a lot of opportunity there for lessons learned, especially as a first year legislator. Could you tell me a little bit about, you know, some of the important things or the highlights that you feel like you've learned this year? Well, I, the most important highlight I believe is that it is so important to build relationships, not just in your own caucus, but across the aisle with stakeholders in Lansing, stakeholders at home. This is all about relationship building. And when you're a jerk, you're not going to get much done. And uh, my grandma always said, you get a lot more bees with honey. And that's actually true. And I think people operate better with kindness and we just need to be good humans. And so the biggest thing that I learned is just to be nice to people because they will listen to you. They will engage in conversations. Uh, you would be surprised that the farthest left legislators, and I would probably consider self the farthest right before you go into a little bit of crazy, but um, that we get along really well. You know, that we have found commonalities. Um, we're parents, we're daughters, we're sons. There are so many things. We love Michigan. We love what we do. Many of us come came from local government and those relationships were so important to build. And we absolutely need collaboration apart, across party lines because for the first time, what was it since I think I was in high school, 1993, you know, Michigan legislators will have an opportunity to stay in one chamber longer than six or eight years. There's the potential that I could stay in the house for 12 years and that gavel can go back and forth many times. And so though the relationships that you build are so important. And I think we also need to change the culture um, in Lansing now that we are going to be there longer. And I'm really hoping that does change, that it's not money and who raises the most funds that drives it, but the people who are the most reasonable and want to do what's best for all Michiganders, not just our districts, not just certain populations, but every single resident of Michigan is really important. And that can only be accomplished by building relationships. State Rep. Jamie Green, thank you so much for joining us on this segment of the MERS Monday podcast. And that's going to do it for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you to our morning's roundtable participants, Adrian Heeman, the co-founder and CEO of Grassroots Midwest, and CEO and chief strategist John Selleck of Harbor Strategic. Additionally, thank you to Hillary Doe, the chief growth officer of the Governor's Growing Michigan Together Council, as well as Fatima Salman, a University of Michigan lecturer and member of the council's higher education work group. I also want to give thanks to State Rep. Jamie Green, a Richmond Republican, for joining us at the end of today's episode here. I'd like to give a tremendous thanks to Danielle James, our house reporter at MERS News. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore Audio and Okemos. Thanks to him for putting this audio together. Additionally, thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all of our other podcasts. Until next time, I am Samantha Schreiber. Yeah.